Welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming. You guys are awesome. I wish I could all, I wish I could reach out and give you guys all a hug right now, but unfortunately we're on this goddamn physical distancing crap. So I'm just sending cosmic uh, hugs out to all of my listeners. All you guys out there mean so much to me. So thank you for coming to the show today, guys. Um, if you found this on Facebook or on Instagram or somewhere else, please uh, continue to like and share those posts. Get them out to your family and friends, guys. That's how we expand the conversation out uh, beyond what it currently is, which is still growing in numbers. So thank you for doing what you're doing, but uh, we need more of that. Okay, so each and every one of you guys, please like and share the uh, social media posts in your own circles. You can also donate to the podcast if you find the information valuable. there should be a, a link at the bottom of whatever podcast app you're listening to to donate. Uh, no obligation, though. But please go check out our YouTube page. That is also another project that's really important to me. It's the Mind Ops YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Up there, we have all sorts of content. We have Conversations with the Mind video, uh, so you can go check out myself and the guests uh, and watch the video of our um of our conversations uh, oftentimes that extra little aspect to the conversation adds a whole lot because you can see our emotions on our face while we're while we're saying some of these things um, but i also have a, a ton of other content up there so just go check out the playlist on the youtube page um, all right let's get on with the show folks
Today's good news story comes from the goodnewsnetwork.org, and the title of the article reads, Crayola, sorry, Crayola unveils new crayon pack of skin tone colors from around the world to promote inclusivity. This was really cool. Um, at first, I was pretty skeptical going into this because the, the uh, box of crayons is only 24 colors, and I'm like, whoa, there's way more shades than, of people than that. Um, uh, but the more I read the article, it was really cool. So Crayola Crayons, um, you guys all know Crayola, right? They launched this new pack of specially formulated Colors of the World crayons designed to mirror and represent over 40 global skin tones across the world. Um, let's see, they released it on May 21st, the United Nations World Day of Cultural Diversity for Dialogue and Develop. Um hoping that the project would allow children to creatively and accurately color themselves into the world they see around them. Um, so the article goes on to talk about um, the world getting more diverse uh, and how we need to you know, teach our children about diversity in new ways, uh, especially if we're going to overcome things like uh, you know, racial tensions and things like that. You know, I was thinking the other day too, and maybe I'll, I'll save this for the good news story or for the... Uh, the my mind piece. Um, so yeah, we need to teach folks about this diversity, uh, issue because, you know, I don't remember uh, learning much about diversity in school and, uh, it's becoming a much more politicized issue. Definitely. Um, people need to be more well-informed about it. And so we can have more, um, more well-informed discussions about it. So I don't know, this, this just seemed really cool. Um, Really cool idea for Crayola to jump on. Um, and, you know, I hope I see more things like this. So, yes, let me get to um, the conversation that's been on my mind recently. And I've been thinking a lot about um, racism and uh, racial inequality through my studies at CSU for social work. That's one of the major um, issues that the field of social work likes to tackle is um, racial inequality. And, you know, I, I've been picking apart words recently and racist just didn't seem like it was the proper term for what I see going on. Right. So I don't know. In my opinion, we're all one race. We are all part of the human race. And uh, so this isn't really racism. Uh, we're not really hating our own well, we are kind of hating our own species, but we're not hating it on the on the level that uh, that I, I guess I'm feeling it. So I don't know. I came up with this other word the other day called melanomism, right? Which is uh, that's what m most racial clashes are over uh, skin color, right? Skin color being different than my own, and therefore they're part of the out group. I'm part of the in group. Things like that. Well, again, we're not uh, really focusing. Um, those statements on somebody's race, but rather on the level of uh, melanoma in their um, in their skin. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. Mel melanoma or melanin in their skin, right? So, uh, yeah, either one of those terms. Someone out there is is correcting me right now, saying like this guy is such an idiot, and I apologize. But uh, yeah, melanomism, something like that, um, where. It gets more to the core of the issue of what we're arguing about in these um, racial divisions and these talks on racism is that we're 
really just arguing over different skin pigments, right? Um, not really arguing over someone of a different race, in my opinion, because we're all part of this human race. So that's interesting. Um, and that's what has been kind of on my mind too, and, and sort of related to this good news story. So I think we need to be talking about skin color more openly, more, um, you know, in a different way than we've been talking about it, right? The way we talk about it is so divisive. Um, but really, you know, we're all part of the same race. We're just different aspects of this spectrum that we all exist on, right? Human race is on this giant spectrum of skin color, and it's based off of where you're born in the world, where your ethnicity uh, or where your where your family heritage comes from, right? Um, if you're if you're in, um, you know. Uh, countries more by the equator your skin tends to be more dark um whereas if you're if your family heritage comes from you know more of the poles it tends to be uh lighter in color but it's all shades of um brown really you know we're all the same race guys we just have different shades of color skin um you know it seems like such a common sense issue um but it causes still so much division Anyway, that's been on my mind lately. Think about it, sit on that for a little bit, um, and see where it takes your mind. Hopefully we can spark up some more uh, dialogue around it. Certainly needed. Today's guest, very special guest, a uh, good friend of mine, Colby Kelly. Now, Colby and I met at uh, Z's training gym here in Fort Collins. Uh, Colby was currently training at Z's when I started, uh, maybe six or seven years ago there. And... Um, I always knew Colby as like this fun-loving, uh, extremely humorous guy on the mat. Would regularly come to practice in like the most inappropriate um, tight spandex and and outfits, and uh, was constantly telling uh, inappropriate jokes. But it made the atmosphere so light when we're you know we're grueling, we're going to battle, and he just throws in these little quips when we're training that that. Uh, really got us all just laughing and to loosen up so that we can learn better. So I really appreciate Colby for what he, what he brings, uh, in that way. So he describes himself as a spiritual novice or a late bloomer. Uh, we talk about that in the podcast, uh, his sort of path, uh, that he's currently on from, um, uh, being more atheistic or agnostic in the past, um, still holding on to some of those things, but uh, gently moving into the idea that uh, the spiritual world might exist. So we talk a lot about that. It's really cool. Um, he's a writer and a student. Uh, he's currently studying at Colorado State University in the Ethnic Studies Department and also working on um, a partial degree or, or maybe as a minor in Women and Gender Studies. So we get to talk a lot about um ethnicity today, uh, women and gender um, issues and struggles that people have been through over the years. He's really informed me quite a bit. You know, I, I took a few classes in my undergrad in the uh, women's studies department, uh, women in political theory, uh, a couple of classes like that. Um, but, you know, I got a lot from those. Uh, it really opened my eyes to, to step outside my comfort zone and, and study things um, that uh, were outside of my uh, view at the time, you know, and, you know, today on the podcast, you know, Colby and I talked and he really opened my eyes even further to, to some of these aspects of uh, humanity and, 
and uh, how we can maybe go about um, transitioning to a new level of consciousness where we can start talking about these things in more productive ways. So let's get on to the show with Colby Kelly. Thanks for listening, folks. where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane LaMaster, and we're here for episode number 77 with a good friend, Kobe Kelly. How are you? I'm all right, Shane. How are you? I'm doing great, man. It's good to see you. Um, number one, because I haven't seen you for a long time. Uh, yeah. Period. You know, uh, most of the time I'd see you in the gym. But, um, you know, just amidst this whole pandemic thing and the quarantine and all that stuff, it's always good to see a, a friendly face, someone that brings a smile to my day. Yeah, I miss the gym a lot. I got a bad back and now I wiped out on my scooter busted my ass too so now my hips are all i'm having to like get those back in in place well not in place but like in working shape but yeah i wish i could go back to the gym i miss it mm. so what happened to your back anyway i i don't think i got the whole story i don't know it's i've been seeing like every specialist that i can everything and i've had like something like 12 mris and had CTs and x-rays and they can't find anything that's like pinpointing it and tried all kinds of uh like injections and things like that and physical therapy and nothing's really working what does it feel like where is it where is it like located it's like um I would say it feels like a Nike swoosh like that because I can like literally trace the pain but it's like it starts in like the center of my back and then goes like across to my right side Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I've been getting a lot into recently, like um, looking into shamanic worldviews and and different perspectives from different cultures on like uh, how the body holds injury or how it holds trauma or um, how you can clear some of those things. And I mean, for me, for the longest time, like I had all these serious knee injuries and things, and I was kind of stuck with western medicine like that in my mind that was like the best answer and um oftentimes western medicine isn't the right tool right like they don't like in your case like they tried everything they don't know what it is and i hear this all the time and then i hear about these people that go to like a a spiritual healer or an energy healer or something and they start to work on like this whole other level of the human being um beyond the physical but like free up like this this stuff that's stuck uh, that Western science can't figure out. Um, but for a lot of people, that stuff works. Yeah. I just had a crazy thought about Western medicine, okay? Do it. So I don't mean to take this, I gotta take us kind of like in a dark turn here, but but it's kind of like, it is kind of Western in that like, it has to be like an extreme, you know? It's not like a, 
people like it when you have to prove something in like the western scientific method it's like it is or it isn't you know there's no kind of gray area so this is a good way of like taking it like to the the polar extreme in that like western way with like the mind over matter type of like the power of the mind thought is it have you heard about the syrian refugees that are just going to sleep and like this like they they fall asleep and then they just die like they just don't wake up again like they're just kind of choosing to die and like they've actually proven now that you can just choose to die like eventually you give up and your body just quits on you i haven't yeah, it was a sad story, but it's like, and then they compared it to uh, concentration camp victims, and they said that they would reach this point when, like, you literally, you've given up the will to live, and you, you die, and they said that um, everybody would carry one cigarette with them, um, and, well, at least one cigarette, because cigarettes were super valuable to trade between, like, concentration camp prisoners. And they said that, like, eventually, they said people would just sit down and, like, just stay there for an extended period of time. And then they would, like, when they see them, like, smoking their cigarette, they said, like, that's his last cigarette or her last cigarette. And then they would just sit there and die. Like, that was just, they gave up. I'm like, like I said, that's kind of like the extreme you need to take it to to be like, now you can prove that the mind really does control the body. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's a great, uh, case study of, of that exactly. Um, my first MMA coach said something to me way back in the day, um, and it just stuck with me. And I've, I've tooled it over in my mind for many years and tried to, you know, it has different iterations and different meanings, but he said, um, choose your death. And that's, he just left it at that. <clears throat> and I'm like, what the, that just hit me like a ton of bricks, you know? Um, so at first I was like, okay choose my death so i want to go out like doing my favorite thing or like doing something really extreme jumping out of a plane something like that like that's that's so uh my ego was like in it a lot right like i wanted to go out and have my epitaph read something like he did a triple gainer off of a off of a cliff or something and missed <laughs> dude with an exclamation point right right so that's where my immature 20 something year old mind took it. And then uh, over the years, it's, you know, it's taken so many different shapes, that phrase, choose your death. Um, to now, like, and you're bringing this in, right? Like these people are making a conscious choice to cease all function, right? To, to be like, you know, the other side is better than this, or, um, you know, I can't take what's, what's, right in front of me in this reality anymore so i'm going to make a choice to, to have that happen i've read of monks doing that since um since i found out about that um but for me now that that phrase like choose your own death just means like i want to i want to go out surrounded by love i want to go out um without any regrets you know things like that um what does that mean to you like uh, this whole story about the Syrian refugees and, and concentration camp and just learning that knowledge, right? That you get to choose your own death sometimes, sometimes yeah. accidental, but if you do get to choose your own death, like that's a lot of agency. That's a lot of 
power over uh, a really intense experience that we're going to go through. Yeah. How do you take that move forward with that information? Well, that's a hell of a question, Shane. <laughs> I mean, hmm. I guess like, um, I guess I always had like a, that like a romanticized kind of idea of it, like, like a heroic death or something like that. I think that what I'm learning a lot too is like the older I get, the more like the the curtain is pulled back, and I'm learning that like everything is kind of a lie, and like like you know, like I romanticize like the the Rohirrim at the end of Lord of the Rings, you know, like uh, like dying and like charging into the forces of Mordor. But like the more I'm learning that everything's kind of bullshit, like there, like there's not going to really be like this like great war that I'm going to be able to like go and die heroically, and you know, like it's probably going to be like based on like somebody's trying to make a shitload of money or like you know, a bunch of bullshit. And so it's kind of like um, now I got to figure out like how do you like die of old age and heroically. Like what do you gotta, what do you gotta do to be like Dan? He was a, like a, or at least not even that they like people talk about you, just like think about you in that way. But like you also like you lived a full life and you were a kind person. Yeah, totally. I think um, it's difficult. Well, I think we have to kind of change the way we think about the word hero too. Like like you're bringing up these, um, you know, these metaphors that we see on movies and things like that of like heroes that, you know, some of them truly lived and some of them are fantasy, but we identify with like that feeling and it may not be possible for some of us to have that kind of heroic death, but there's other ways of being a hero, right? So I imagine like, yeah, I, you know, I'll probably, I'm hopefully going to die a really old man. My goal now is to reach at least a hundred. Um, yeah. Anything after that, it's a bonus, but that's my goal. So um, if I can be on my deathbed as an old man and just know that I contributed and I gave back to this sort of uh, reality construct that we live in, that I gave more than I took from it, um, that I, you know, I had kids or I, I had grandkids or, I shared parts of myself or of the work that I'm doing and I'm, I left something better than when I found it, you know? So to me, that's, that's what feels like, uh, that's a hero's death for the common man. Yeah. I would say for me personally, because like all I, all I want to do is make movies, right? Like that's like really the only job I want. And so like, I, I would like to write and all this stuff and like um suppose for me it'd be like if I just made if I just entertained people for a while, you know what I mean? And like I'm remembered in that way, I'm cool with that. You know, even if they just like just made them feel better for a little while, you know? Mm-hmm. Made them forget about their problems for ninety minutes. Right. Well that's that that's that change like Steven Spielberg has brought so much joy to people's hearts that that's rippled out into lots of many other things and other inspiration for other projects. So, yeah, you know, I think the concept of the modern hero is 
much different than what ancient heroism was. Um, yeah. But we still sort of have this archetype that we're trying to strive for, um, the old school hero, you know, which is probably why, partially why I got into the martial arts. I was, yeah. I was drawn into those movies back in the day. Like, yeah, I want to be like a, a fucking samurai warrior, you know, yeah. but they don't exist these days. No. I would, I, my whole mentality was like, if like my Luke Skywalker moment comes, I want to be ready. And so like, I need to know how to fight. I need to know how to, I took, like, I know I took CPR at Front Range. I know CPR and first aid, because you never know, like, when's it going to come? But now I'm realizing that it's like, it's a, it's a process. It takes, you gotta, you gotta spread it out. Here's another thing that, that might twist your mind too about this whole simulation thing that we live in. Um, so I've noticed that once you acquire a skill, um, the opportunity to use that skill presents itself more uh, frequently, right? So um, I've never really had to deal with many emergencies before I got my first responder training. And then since then, like I've been present for all sorts of emergencies. Um, yeah. My wife says the same thing. Like she, she uh, has witnessed like three or four car wrecks in the last couple of years, uh, just right outside of our houses that we've lived in and always been present on the scene to like be the person helping because no one else on the scene is known. They just have their phones out and they're like, should we call someone? And she's just like giving orders and doing what the first aid training does. But uh, without that training, I don't know if, um, if she'd have those opportunities, if we'd have those opportunities. It's kind of crazy how that happens, huh? Yeah, like it's like, um, I, that's see, and that's what I'm talking about when I was talking earlier about why I said that like, I. I I'm starting to question everything that like uh, made me a skeptic and an atheist and all stuff is like sometimes it seems like things are just willed into existence you know or like things are just willed into happening like like you said like it's uh yeah like or like um same with learning how to fight like uh and it's funny that you said it like because everybody's like panics when they like see a car accident and Callie's like calm and I think like that's kind of the benefit of learning both those things too is like the the skill I had from learning how to fight was as I didn't I wasn't like I didn't go into fight or flight mode like it was like I was like this is I'm totally calm here I'm like I don't gotta fight like I'm not don't feel like I have to prove myself I'm not worried this guy's gonna hurt me like I'm just gonna be cool about this you know but like uh, hardly ever, like it out. And I mean, I was kind of, I would have noticed too, because I was like worried about getting into like confrontations or fights or something like out in public. And so like, I would like, like try to be like looking for it in a way, you know? But then like after learning how to fight, like then there's like opportunity, like opportunities, I guess you'd say like start to present themselves. Like all of a sudden it was like, people like seem to be more confrontational with me and like more like willing to challenge me for like no like reason. But again, like I just, it was my, the skill was, is that like, I knew how like to do it. Like I knew how to throw a, throw a punch then. I just didn't need to, like I didn't, I didn't feel a compulsion to. It was just like, uh, I was like, if things go bad, yeah, I'll throw like, if I got it, I'll throw a punch. But like, I don't want to like it. 
I'm like, I know somebody's going to step in here and break it up. I don't need to escalate it. Yeah. And like, I, I would think to myself, like, I've taken punches from much better men than this guy. So like, if he throws a punch, I can probably handle it. You know what I mean? So I'm just kind of like, this is good. Everything's going to be all right. We're going to be fine. Everybody calm down. Yeah, I know that I do my own martial arts and, you know, it never fails. You know, I don't even drink, but whenever I go out to the bar scene, like for a friend's birthday or something, almost always some drunk guy will start some shit with me for no reason, just because I look a certain way. Um, and you're right, like there's like this calmness that comes over me, like this anticipation, like I'm super ready and, and um, I can feel like all the muscles like becoming ready for anything. But at the same time, there's like this inner calm of like, uh, yeah, just understanding yourself in the situation and understanding, uh, yeah, really having that understanding of what you're capable of you know yeah. another thing martial arts taught me too that in those situations you really don't know who you're going up against no. and that's that's where like this old samurai mentality still comes over me is it's still like the old west and even more so these days with um you know the, just the growth of jiu-jitsu and martial arts in the last 10 years like there's so many blue belts and purple belts out there um you know you can meet a handful of them any given night or maybe they have six months experience or maybe they have a knife in their pocket or um, maybe they have a whole gang of friends behind them right so martial arts teaches you too like you know what you're capable of but you also know what you're not capable of you're not capable of taking on 20 people like you know Steven Seagal back in the day but yeah. it's still you know it's still like the wild west and it gives you an appreciation and a respect for for what you're capable of doing to somebody else, you yeah. know, and that's why I don't think I was ever super successful in MMA um, was because I, I don't like the feeling that comes over me from doing harm to somebody, you know, like I know I've done harm to people and I know what's possible, but doing it afterwards, I feel terrible, even if I didn't like the person, you know, and that's, that's yeah. anguish I don't want to carry. Yeah, and I think like uh, it reminds me of like all those people that like all the fighters in the UFC and stuff when they what, like the Diaz's like when they win and they like go over and like raise the other guy's hand all stuff. I think it's because that's like that's the their way of uh, reconciling it is they're like I had to do that, but like everybody should still love this guy, and I'm sorry I had to hurt you, and like he's cool. That's why I like reconciling that they physically harm somebody. Yeah, you don't get that chance on the street. No. And you know, like, also if you think to yourself, like, when you're, like, rolling, you're, like, like you're, like, this is, like, cool and I'm good at this, but, like, that's because that guy's, like, trying to, like, poke me in the eye or, like, bite my finger, or, like, grab my dong and try to, like, pull it off. Like, it's, you know, we're being gentlemen here. Like, this, people don't fight like gentlemen in the streets. Sure. I, I like to, uh, that's part of my style as a coach at Z's is that I try and incorporate some of that stuff sometimes um, where I'll be rolling with the lower belts and um, instead of just holding them in a position because maybe they, they just don't want to move. They feel like if they move, they're going to find a worse position to be in. Yeah. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll make a motion to like swipe at their eye or to like break a finger or, 
you know, something small and just be like, hey, you know that this is still available to you. So um, make sure that you're guarding your head or guarding your face or something like that. Um, I like to mix that in because if you get, you can get too stuck in the sport aspect of jujitsu instead of knowing what it's, you know, what it's capable of and what its limitations are too, what you have to look, look out for. Like jujitsu with striking is so much different than just sport jujitsu. Yeah. Well, it's like, uh, I mean, uh, look at all the people that didn't transition that like, I figured it'd be like my murderers in the UFC, like, or just in MMA, like, Oh, oh damn! Now I feel terrible. I'm forgetting his name. He's like the he's the greatest crap whatever. Oh my god! I'm so embarrassed. Marcelo Garcia. Okay. Uh, he did not transition well, and he's like the baddest motherfucker ever. You know, so because it was like um, and he, like he literally it was because he went for a takedown, got punched, and it was a cut. And, you know, and it, like they had to stop it because of a cut because he's not used to getting punched at all. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Back in the day, the old Gracie films and stuff like there would be some there would be striking for sure allowed or the old Valetudo or something um but then there was like this departure away from that and more just like into the purity of just the grappling art minus the striking and now you know you see the reemergence definitely with MMA but even with like Eddie Bravo's promotion for combat jiu-jitsu with their uh, open hand slap slapping uh, have you ever seen that no, I, well, I mean, I saw, I didn't see the open hand slapping. I thought, did he, didn't he do one for a while where you, like, they started off standing up and you couldn't throw strikes until you were, like, engaged in grappling? Yeah, I think that, that. that might be it. Um, he called it. They like, were punching each other. Yeah, combat grappling and its uh, palm strikes are, are allowed, but some people have gotten knocked out. And your game totally changes when you're getting hit, you know what I mean? Um, it's like. That's like, a, and I find so many metaphors and crossovers between jujitsu and life. Like, same thing with life. Like, everything's fine and dandy until you start getting hit in the face by something you didn't expect, right? And then your whole game changes. But if you don't adapt to that new change, right? With COVID, this thing hit us all like a smack in the face. We were going along uh, on our merry way, ignorant, and then slap. And now we're like, oh shit, how do I regain guard on my life? So that yeah. I can um, start, you know, take, taking advantage of this position. Damn, that's a really good point. Yeah, because it's like, it's one thing to have the skill set. It's just like, but when you got to actually like put it into, put it into what, like use, it's, it's a whole nother story. Like we all like said, we had like these beliefs and these hobbies and this, like we would do this and we would do that. But now like the chips are down. Like now it's time to feel like it. Like, how are you actually going to hold up in this? And like, how are you going to treat other people? And <laughs> weird time to be alive. Yeah. What are you seeing um, from your from your perspective of, of uh, consciousness and seeing this whole COVID pandemic and, and people go crazy over toilet paper and all these other things happen in society? What is your uh, take on it so far? <sighs> Terrifying. I mean, it's literally just like it's. It, it feels so like hopeless too, because it's like, um, like what, like what, what is it going to take for like some people? I just don't think they're interested in changing their mind at all. Like they've got a set of beliefs, and they're going to stick to it. But it's just like, like I saw 
it's like it's, in some places they're these store owners are opening up their stores and saying you're not allowed to wear a mask in there and i'm just like people are literally dying by the thousands like what do we got to do to make you like to like prove the point you know what i mean it's like what what counts as evidence because there's a lot of it you know mm -hmm. yeah I don't know. yeah it's uh i don't know what to do about it you know it's discouraging yeah. it's like this uh, it's like this battle sort of between you know herd mentality say you know save and protect the herd um but also this other side that's just like people don't especially in this country people don't want to be told what to do either yeah. way you know we don't want anybody higher up uh, you know government or otherwise telling us what to do it should be the other way around where we're telling the government what to do yeah. um, and so when these things come down and say you know you can't go here, you know, non-essential jobs and you got to wear a mask and uh, people don't like that. And people don't like it the other way too. When you say you can't wear a mask in here, you know, people want to have choice. And I think um, that's that balance that we're trying to figure out is like, how do we allow people the choice to put themselves at risk or at danger if they want to, um, and go to work if they want to, but also how do we not force people to go to work if they are terrified or, you know, how do we, how do we accommodate everybody? And I, I just don't see a, an easy solution. Do you think that this is people, like this is them seizing like the, the like a certain kind of like agency they've been waiting for for a long time? Like they, they've been always wanted to defend their freedom, but like haven't really had um, the um, cause yet. And now that they've got something, even though it's something that like on, in the grand scheme of things isn't really infringing on any freedom, you know, but like this is our first time to be like, now you're, this is an affront to my freedom. Now it's time for me to fight back. And it's kind of uh, misguided maybe. Well, I definitely think that this event has been a catalyst for some people to engage that. But um, there's always something going on, some kind of infringement, trying to get past, you know, infringement on freedom through a bill, trying to get past through Congress or whatever, you know, there's always something going on that people will use as that triggering event, um, to sort of rally themselves into action. But this is certainly a big one. Um, yeah, I think I had those sort of proclivities before this even happened, um, and just seeing some of the craziness around, just the, some of the some of the hoarding behaviors, some of the uh, even you know even when I go out today, like people are still like really angry and driving freaking crazy on the road, and um, like what are you people doing? So that a lot of people out there are causing like this uh, well, I'm not so afraid of the pandemic as I, I'm afraid of people's responses to it right and it's sort of reinforcing my proclivities for personal freedom like I want to be able to protect my family if uh, the nutball neighbor tries to break into my house for my toilet paper uh, yeah. you know I want to be able to have the freedom to to protect myself and grow my own gardens I don't want people telling me what I can and cannot do um, in my own space, um, 
you know, all these things. You know, here's, I just had an interesting thought that when you were saying that you want to be able to protect your family is like straight up. I don't trust the police, you know? No, me neither. Um, but like if things went, I uh, necessarily went south, just to the point where they're martial law. And like, I would be cool with you, like being a, like my police officer, you know what I mean? But like, I, so maybe that's uh, I don't know. So just need to divide it up a little bit more. Yeah. I, I think I know what you mean. Um, like somebody I know, I, I know your intentions are good. I know you're not like corrupt. Sure. I don't like a person that goes and gets a job as like a police officer. I sometimes worry about, you know, especially because I've met people that were like, I'm in going to join the police academy. And I'm like, you are the biggest dick I've ever met. Like you are a straight up bully and you're going to join police force, huh? Either that or like they try and hold a conversation with you and it is the dumbest conversation of your life. And you're like, really? You're going to be a police officer. Okay. <laughs> so I, I hear you there. Like, I don't, I don't trust the police as an organization. I know there's good apples and bad apples in there. It's, but it's not my job to sort through them and um, pick and choose which ones are good or not. So I just, my philosophy is like, it's not my, it's not the police's job to protect me uh, because I can protect myself. You know, I don't need the police to protect me. Um, I can do that myself. And your idea, like protecting each other on a community level, right? Like yeah. protecting the people that you're invested in, your neighbors, your, your family, your friends, like that's the kind of protection that we need, not like this, um, I don't know, this hierarchical department above us, I guess. Like their original, um, police were, were originally to protect and serve, right? Like in the 20s and 30s, I don't even know if they carried guns. You know, there's these old, pro, uh, these old signs from back in the day, you can find it like antique shops of, police officers like giving lollipops to kids and like kind of getting down on their level and like playing in the community. And that was what I saw uh, or imagined a police officer was growing up, but that's not what it is today. Like it's exactly. Have, like, I was just thinking about this the other day. They have like seven weapons on their belt. Really? Think, if they think about it, like they got a baton, mm -hmm. they've got a gun, they've got a taser, They've got a knife. What else they got? They or they got the telescopic batons. They got pepper spray. I lost count. But that's a shitload. Handcuffs. Use a hand. Handcuffs, and they wear their like like uh, armor on the outside too. So you know it's like not only can I kill you, but you can't kill me. Like all the time. Like that's the message I see from it. At least. Yeah, definitely. And then it doesn't seem a lot surprising that they would like shoot lots and lots of unarmed people you know they've done it before yeah because i saw this video the other day um of this uh this cop pulled over this white kid on the side of the road and asked him to get out and he was and um i think the kid like held his arm behind his back which you know could be a sign of like yeah he's going for a gun but um you know, that's a tough decision for the police officer to make, but he put him down, you know, and the kid didn't have a weapon. Uh, he was yeah. unarmed. So, I mean, it's crazy shit. I know, it's terrible. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to be the person in those situations, but also, 
um, I don't think they're, maybe they're not getting enough training. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to sit here and criticize the police too much, you know, because uh, there's a lot of police out there that do a lot of great um, service to the community. And um, it's just unfortunate that they don't get as much publicity as the others. Yeah. You know, I, this is what I think was a huge part of it. Cause I used to, um, I don't know, just curious about guns and stuff and like, would like look at those like gun training videos and stuff. And I think what happened is like that, like becoming like the gun, the weapons expert, the, this thing like became like a competitive market, you know? And so people would always like try to like level up, like one up the other gun trainers. And so like to become the best one basically made it seem like guns were the most dangerous thing on planet earth and you can be killed within like seconds of somebody being pulled up, like pulling a gun on you. And so it just like got in everybody's mind, like don't even hesitate if you've got a gun, kill them because you don't want to kill you. But I, did you see that guy in Toronto that drove like he drove a van or a truck through like the crowd? Do you remember that? I think I heard about it. And uh, the Canadian cop, like um, I think he had his gun, but he wasn't pointing at it, or maybe he was holding on the guy. But the guy kept trying to do like suicide by cop. He made it look like he had a gun, but he didn't actually have a gun. I want to say he even had like an airsoft gun or something like that. But the Canadian officer just kept like refusing to shoot him and tell him to put his gun down. And it worked. Like eventually he arrested the guy. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you can, uh, I don't know. They do things differently in Canada. Yeah, that's true. Here in the U.S., yeah, there's different like mindsets with um, firearms. And here it seems like maybe it's a shift in, in just the overall mindset of like shoot first and ask questions later. Um, you know, protect yourself at all costs um, because you're, you know, as a police officer, you're a greater good to the community alive than dead or, you know, whatever. Um, I don't know. I grew up with firearms. Uh, I've been shooting since I was, I don't know, three or four years old. I was on a competitive shooting team in high school, at military school, um, you know, all sorts of shooting and courses and long range courses and all sorts of things. So, I don't know. It's really hard for me not to have like uh, respect for firearms and not yeah. to like um, just like martial arts. Like I know what they're capable of. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't ever want to pull a gun unless I intend to use it, you know? Yeah. And um, I think a lot of people who haven't grown up with guns are afraid of them because I don't know, for a lot of reasons, underexposure, not knowing how to operate or clean or, or, you know, safety precautions. Uh, it's, it's scary for me to think that people who don't have a respect for it are also carrying weapons out there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I think that's what's scary about them to me. Cause it's like, um, I don't know. I always think about it kind of like uh, just because I like medieval stuff and knights and all that stuff. I always think about it in like the terms of a sword, like carrying a sword. And like if you, I guess when back then, if you saw somebody carrying a sword, you at least, I mean, pretty good chance you're like, they're trained. They know how to use it. I don't got to worry about like them just like going off willy nilly, slicing everybody up, you know? 
but now it's like anybody and like you don't have like you know a sword you like you at least be like well if they're no good with the sword i can probably get away you know i can run away from them but like yeah. the gun it's kind of like everybody's a pretty decent shot you know like if you like just aim in the general direction you got a pretty good chance you know yeah yeah man i i, I don't know part of me believes in um past lives and and things like this and i i have a real affinity for certain time periods and the one i i feel most close to is um you know samurai culture and you know trained warriors carrying around their weapons and um you know common folk wouldn't wouldn't carry around weapons you know no yeah, and if you were if you were a poser and you were not trained, you were probably called out on it and decapitated pretty quickly. You know. Yeah. Um, might get in a couple lucky shots, but I don't know. And that's an interesting thing too about um, old warrior cultures and sort of mapping it into modern day life because, um, like the the ninja back in the day began as farmers. You know, yeah. they, were, they were farmers using farmers' tools and relying on stealth to overcome their larger, heavier opponents in the samurai. You know, yeah, using farming tools and farming weapons and really mastering those things. So it's interesting how I think, you know, if shit hit the fan and it got way worse, like say this pandemic happened and then like a major volcano in you know, Yellowstone or something like that, or whatever goes off then then we really start to see who's sort of ready for this yeah. and who's not i don't think anybody's ready but other people are going to fare better than than others you know you and i just took a path of uh being proactive about it and hoping yeah. that we never have to use it but also enjoying the learning of the skills yeah and i think like ultimately like with everything else i've said so far yeah. like the skill will be like that we won't panic you know right we can just then think like okay so we're running out of water we gotta find more water this is where water's at or however it's going to work in the apocalypse i don't know yeah who knows man yeah um so what about uh the martial arts so for me the martial arts has become it's evolved too over the over the years and it started out as like this this way to keep my active young five-year-old brain um you know focused and teach me some self-discipline which i'm sure my mom loved but um you know i started competing real young and it was really just about like confidence and defending myself against bullies right bullies on the schoolyard and um as long as i could handle myself uh, physically then i could lean into like more and more academic pursuits right because i don't have to like worry about that piece yeah um, so i think all the way into like my mid-20s um it was all about force and pushing harder than anyone else and um you know just a really sort of violent chaotic aggressive um attitude that i put into my martial arts and then there was this big switch when I was um, forced to, you know, sideline because of injuries, where I had to like rediscover who I was beyond the martial arts. And even though I couldn't practice physically, like parts of what I had learned over those decades had stuck with me and I got to see 
that the martial arts bled into like so many other aspects of my life. Um, and now that's sort of how I see it holistically. Like my life is bleeding through and through with uh, martial arts concepts that I've learned over the years. Um, and it's more of a spiritual path for me these days, you know, instead of um, being aggressive and pushing hard, uh, I mean, I still push hard, um, but it's about relaxing into the flow more, not forcing anything, but uh, responding in a, in a more reflexive manner to my opponent. Um, so I guess for you too, like your martial arts journey has been, has had its ups and downs. Yeah. So what does that look like for you? And like, what has been the, the internal journey like for you too? Yeah. The first one I noticed is like, I had the, this problem where it's like, if something isn't easy for me, like kind of like panic with it, you know, and uh, just like, uh, I don't know. I, yeah, like it's not easy or if I'm not instantly good at it, like I would panic, but I never really had anything like MMA in my life up until I started training like at 22. And like it, it was, I was able to think to myself like, well, yeah, I'm not good at it right now. What well, was like with every skill now, even like, a, well, it's like with every skill, I'd just be like, well, yeah, I'm not good at it because I'm a white belt at it. Like I just start like, I'm like, I haven't even got like a, the black tape on it yet. Like I literally just started, you know. That's how you. That's like if I keep doing it and I keep doing it and keep doing it, well then eventually I'll be, like, I'll be a blue belt. And if I really like it, I'll stick with this. Like whatever skill this is, I'll stick with it, and maybe one day I'll be a black belt at it. Like I'll be the world's greatest. Like I don't know, checkers player or whatever. But uh, yeah, and like, and so I'd say recently, like that's kind of what that's changed it like uh morphed into like with time and not being able to trade and all that stuff is like it's become like i'm starting to realize how much of like uh what like aspects of the like mind like the like attitude and mental uh, i'm trying to sure i'm trying to say here but like how much of that is like exercise and how much of it is a, like a, a skill, like positive thinking is a skill that you got to build. Like if you haven't had a like particularly happy life, you're a white belt that like happiness and uh, positivity. And so you got to kind of keep working at it and working at it. And it's like, uh, like if you don't instantly feel something like uh, it's like, it's the, the I'm trying to say, like, you know, what I'm trying to say like, it's all like a, uh, like these are those are skills too. Like uh, I, I I mean like in the way that reading was a, is a skill, you know. Like it's uh, ways of thinking are skills too, and you got like you got to work at those. And if you keep doing it and you keep doing it, eventually you'll progress and you'll get better at it. I, I love how you apply the belt system to pretty much every experience everybody has out there. You know, yeah. like, like I was thinking like oh yeah like I'm a I'm a blue belt now i think or i'm a blue belt at my relationship with my wife um but i'd say i'm still a white belt at marriage itself yeah you know, or um you know yeah i'm a i'm a brown belt in jujitsu and i'm working also on my brown belt in academia yeah um, you know, but I, yeah, but I'm a newbie when it comes to gardening, you know, and instead yeah. of looking at it and just being 
being like, I just, I, I don't, I'm not good at this. I'm going to just quit or I'm going to move on to something that I'm better at to serve my ego. Maybe no, I'm going to stick with this because this is something that I want in my life. And the more I cultivate this, it's just going to take time and patience, you know, to become yeah. that black belt level gardener. Yeah. And I was just thinking about, in in this way too, that it's like, um, like when you get hurt, like when I hurt my knee, like, it, and you can't train anymore, but you were like going hard, like showing up every day at training and you were getting like, you're like, basically like you were being a good driller, you know, you were dr like drilling all the time. You're getting like intense. And then like, when you get, like when I hurt my knee and you pull yourself back from it and you start to like, uh, focus on like the, like, you just like the mental part of it. And you're like, like start picturing like, you know, guard passes and like how you're going to like set up the submission all stuff. And then you come back like months later, you're like way better. Cause you needed that time away from it to like, get like, a, like align like your mental progression and your physical progression. And then like, once you get those two together and you're like flowing with your jujitsu and you're like, I needed that time off. I think that'll happen too. Like, I think, and like when you say marriage, I think that's what happens like when people get like divorced and get back together is like they were like drilling hard with each other their whole lives they both got to like they both got to like the same level but then it just kind of like they they plateaued at marriage and then they're like well we must we, i guess we don't love each other anymore we got to get divorced and they took that time apart and they're like oh shit like i should have been doing this the whole time and i should have never said that and i should have been mowing the lawn instead of like doing that you know, and then you're like, they get, and then she's like, your the wife is, she's thinking about things she, she should have done. And you get back together and like, wait, are you way better at marriage now? Like I am too. Shit, we should probably get back together. Yeah. Uh, you have to go through those challenges. Um, almost everybody that I know who's stuck with jujitsu or MMA for any amount of time has had a serious injury. Um, almost nobody I know hasn't. And yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like a rite of passage, unfortunately, but it's also, you know, we have great medical technologies these days. So, I mean, worst case scenario, you'll be back in like a year, you know, uh, mine was extreme. Uh, I was out for five years on lots of surgeries, but that was at the fault of uh, Western medicine at the time. Um, but still, like, I learned this whole new curriculum. Like half of my understanding of jujitsu came from not being on the mats or being yeah. forced to replay things over and over in my mind. I actually read a book. Um, it's my, my favorite book of all time. It's called the intention experiment by Lynn McTaggart. And she goes over like all these uh, research studies in all sorts of different fields and, and talks about the power of the mind. And in one section of the book, she talks about, the body's or the mind's ability to heal the body. Um, and there were these studies done where um, there were individuals who had the same injuries, but were in different control groups. One group um, was, was trained in positive visualization for healing. So they were visualizing um, moving their limb. They were visualizing um, the cells actually healing uh, the tissues in there. And they got a a basic understanding of what the anatomy looked like in there. And the other group didn't have anything. They were just a control group. And they found that the people who were able to engage the mind with those repetitions and with the healing practices healed like exponentially faster than the others. 
um, cut down the recovery time significantly and had fewer re-injuries uh, in the long term. And to me, that just screams that number one, we can heal ourselves. I think all healing comes from inside, um, but we can we can control that a little bit more than we give ourselves credit for. And um, number two, like you can get that muscle memory you can retain a lot of that you can retain a lot of muscle mass after injury just from the visualization of the action right so when you're forced to be on the sidelines you're visualizing moves and you're visualizing submissions you are training don't think that that's like not training that's just as important as actually physically doing the movement right so i like to tell our athletes at z's like when you're not on, I mean, you only come to the mat for one hour and a half a day or three hours at the most, right? There's, there's 21 le hours left in the day. What are you doing? You should use some of that, the hours for mental training, you know, review video of yourself, go over it in your mind, do some journaling about jujitsu um, or just whatever, but there's other ways to train. And um, yeah, I really like that. Because you can train jujitsu until you're like 90, right? And your body may not work, but your your understanding of it will continue to go. Yeah. And, and like I, I had two things I thought of. First was with um, taking time off from MMA. Did you know that Conor McGregor, just like at the beginning of his career, just, he just felt like he wasn't where he wanted to be, and he stepped back for three years and then came back? I had no idea. Yeah, he just like knew he's like, I just I'm not where I want to be, and he stepped back and took three years and came back and was the baddest ever. Do you know what he did on those three years? What's that? Do you know what he did on those three years? I don't know. I don't think so. I, well, you know what? I he, I think he said it in the interview, but I can't remember what he said. But yeah, and um, I agree with the healing stuff. And like I said, I I guess I'm just thinking this is just more evidence if people need it or like the mind's effect on the body is like, and if you like, it's like, it helps to put it in that, like, like the same kind of athlete terms that we've been using here. But like pretty much, I don't think there's anybody that would disagree that Arnold Schwarzenegger was, was the best bodybuilder of all time. Like he just, he just looked the best. Like he had the best physicality, you know, best physique. Nobody looked as good as he did, you know? Like, I remember, like, you've watched Pumping Iron, right? Yeah. Like, I remember, like, watching it and stuff before I knew it was all, like, scripted. But um, I watched him being like, wait, how, like, like, Lou Frigno's totally going to beat him. He's bigger and, like, it's, like, and then you went, like, and they, like, actually started flexing. I was like, oh, no, like, that's why Arnold won it, like, eight times in a row. It's because, like, he looks real good. But he would always say that, like, um, he could tell when people were going to be good bodybuilders and when they couldn't, because like, he says, they're just, we're just lifting weights. He's like, that guy's never going to make it. And he said, you have to be inside the muscle. And he said, like, he would literally, like, as he's doing curls, he would be like inside his bicep visualizing like every muscle tensing up. I think that's just more like, like I said, like it's a uh, more evidence that it's possible that it's uh, that the mind has that effect on the body. Well, and there's studies that support that now, you know, after Arnold figured it out on his own, science also started to back that too. And um, the studies with mindfulness, uh, being able to apply increased levels of mindfulness to weightlifting 
and um, you know, the muscle's ability to expand at greater um, greater amounts than just mindlessly lifting weights. Yeah. Um, the same thing goes, you know, the, I went to school for uh, sports psychology and you probably heard this term thrown around. It certainly was in my program where they say like, um, you become an expert at 10,000 uh, 10, repetitions or yeah. 10,000 hours, right? So those studies were largely done on um, musicians and uh, specific types of musicians and then just kind of sort of apply generally to everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah. It hasn't actually been tested in, in most fields, but I mean, as a general rule, that's, um, that's sort of like the mentality that, that you need to have to develop, uh, I guess, the proficiency that we're, we're going for in anything that we're doing, right, is yeah. 10,000 hours. So this new thing with mindfulness is um, interesting because now that whole phrase has changed recently to become um, 10,000 intentional repetitions or 10,000 uh, intentional hours of practice. Because you're right, you can go to the gym and do 10,000 mindless repetitions and think that you're a bodybuilder, but that's not what makes a bodybuilder. What makes a bodybuilder is someone who goes in and does 10,000 repetitions where they're in that moment every moment. For a martial artist, same thing. You can't just yeah. go in there and throw 10,000 kicks on the bag. You have to artfully throw 10,000 kicks on the bag. You have to artfully do 10,000 arm bars before you've perfected that motion, you know? Yeah. Do you think it's possible that there's just different kinds of people? Like there's the type of people that 10, that like just cramming in 10,000 hours of doing something would make them an expert. And then there's the type of people that just need like the mindfulness aspect, but they can get to the same uh, level. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that uh, natural athleticism exists for sure. And genetics is a, is a factor in there too. So that was part of what made Arnold so great is his genetics. You know, he was this Austrian build, um, blonde haired, blue eyed. Um, six two. Guy. Yeah, six two tall. Um, and his proportions were uh, perfect, right? Like they were more perfect uh, in, they were in, their, in their balance, right? Like Lou Ferrigno might have been bigger, but his balance uh, in the way that his physique looked wasn't the same as Arnold's. So, um, yeah there's going to be certain athletes that are going to be better naturally at certain sports, but, uh, and they can, they can be the best in the world if they engage the mindfulness, right. Uh, then yeah. they could be like Olympians. Um, but for the average Joe, you know, even with 10,000 hours of, you know, mogul skiing say, I'm not going to be at the same level as, someone else who's built for mogul skiing, you know? Yeah. Um, so it, the, it varies so much more than just this 10,000 hours, right? That's just like this, this sort of, um, it's like this idealistic, like you should just start getting to work and see what happens, you know? Yeah. Like, like go for the 10,000 hours and then when you get there, like are you gonna be happy with it or not? Probably. Yeah, yeah. But again, and I think what the, the key is to all of it is don't make it like 10,000 or what is it against 10,000 hours? Is that what we said? Uh, well, for some things it's 10,000 hours. For some things it's um, 10,000 repetitions. Okay. Well, whatever like the 10,000 is, is, don't make them all consecutive. Yeah. And like, like it's, it's important to take a step back and like 
step away from it for a while because it's like you need to be able to look into it and then like to be like uh, how do you do it without your body and uh, you end up I don't know, thinking uh, I mean outside the box yeah how about this uh, get yeah. better at it how about you have multiple 10,000 hour projects going on at the same time in your life so that when one, when you need to take a step back from one, you still have maybe two other self-improvement projects that you're working on yeah. for yourself into and then rotate them in and out. That's one thing I noticed, you know, when my first catastrophic knee injury happened, I was so immersed in martial arts that took up almost my entire identity. Um, yeah. And then when that was gone, I felt empty. I felt lost. I felt sunk. Um, like who the hell am I? And then over time I started to discover like, oh yeah, I'm so many more things. I'm a student, I'm a brother, I'm all these things. Those things need 10,000 hours as well. Yeah. You know? But I, I wasn't giving them enough, enough time. Um, so then I poured my efforts into the, into those things and then, uh, was able to come back to the martial arts when I did, you know? Yeah. So we got to find these like multiple overlapping projects so that you, you're right. You don't do a consecutive, but leave space to step away and work on something else. Yeah. Yeah. Take, yeah. We're going to be experts and stuff here before long. Yeah. So you're going to school right now for ethnic studies and women and gender studies, right? Um, yeah. That's certainly a, uh, 10,000 hour type pursuit, um, you know, to get that degree, to study, to, you know, yeah. I mean, you're, I know how school is, <laughs> I'm a student, and um, even when you're not actively reading or writing or going to class, you're still toiling over these concepts and putting things together, and that's all um, part of that 10,000 hours. That, that yeah. You do this, right? Yeah, you know, now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense, like it's, um, the 10,000 hours aren't necessarily of one thing. It's like, uh, like, uh, we'll have a reading that we like have to do before class. Then we'll have a class discussion. And then like I have for me personally, just because, you know, all the things we talk about are foreign to me being, you know, white and a man. Uh, so it's like, I got to have that time to process it. And so it's like when I go home and I sit there and like chew on it and think about all this, like all these things that are like making sense and becoming clear and like things that I thought were true that weren't and all that stuff. And then when I like go and read another reading, those are all part of the same 10,000 hours. It's just that they're all different aspects of it and me absorbing it in different ways and experiencing it in different ways too. Yeah. It's a, it's a good way of putting it. That's all accumulating towards yeah. some expertise in something, right? Yeah. I guess uh, maybe that was a problem I had where I would thought of it as like it was 10,000 hours of like me, like, I don't know, reading essays or whatever, but 10,000 hours of it just immersed in the, the environment, the academic environment. Sure. I think most listeners out there can probably think of something that they're doing right now that's a 10,000 hour type activity. And um, 
I think it's an interesting sort of self-reflection thought experiment to do to um, think about if that thing that you're working on um, came to an end, you know, um, it doesn't have to be a reason behind it, but you know, say I mean, you graduate, right? So your 10,000 hour experience, boom, you know, you hit your mark, it goes away. Now you don't have those things to focus on. Um, so that's a whole, I mean, that's a very similar sort of crossroads or turning point as like a, an injury, you know, where you're forced not to do something. So a lot of people kind of get stuck there after graduation or after a big capstone and sort of get lost for a couple of years and try and figure out who they are now. Like, what do I do now that this thing happened? And that's another good reason to have like multiple things going on, right? So you graduate, but now you, you know, now you're on the job market. Now you're, uh, but you're still working on other passions that, that you're, you know, engaging. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, uh, um, um, the, the, that might be an example of like cramming in the 10,000 hours is like, you know, you went to school and you said to yourself, like, I'm going to become a, I don't know, a get up my business degree or whatever. And so you just know, it's like, okay, four years, I got to do this many things and then I'll be a businessman. And so like, um, they treated school more of like as a chore than they did. There was no mindfulness about it. You know, there was no like, um, it was okay. Learn this fact, fill in the bubble, move on with my life. It was never like a, huh, I got to process this. Like I'm just learning this for the first time. Like I'm learning about, you know, uh, I don't know, government or civics for the first time. It's not so much just like I got to memorize like what, like the Bill of Rights was. It's like, a, like how do I apply this? Where have I seen this in life? Like, what is this? Like, a, like when I heard that, did I remember something that like before, like when I heard about, you know, democracy when I was a kid, did I understand it then? Do I understand it now? How, like, what's the difference between those two thoughts is for them though, it's more just like, a democracy is, you know, these three facts. I write that on the test and I move on with my life and never think about it again. I think that's why a lot of people think it was a waste of time when, you know, and then these, there's people in the world that would like kill to have the same education that people treat like it was a waste of time and like they, you know, they, they think they're, they have a like filled with useless facts. And when in fact it's like, you should be grateful that you have all those facts, but there was no mindfulness in it because they thought I put in my 10,000 hours, I become a business executive. Right. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. It's like two, two different levels, right? One level is um, service level facts and that'll get you through to the, you know, to graduation. It'll get you a job. Um, but there's a deeper level that I, you know, I'm learning more and more about this um, in my pedagogy class this last semester, but there's this deeper level of learning that I think you're talking about where it may be, may incorporate mindfulness, but it's definitely um, a deeper like mental engagement with the content, right? So you're not just learning facts, but then you start to unfold the facts further and, and ask yourself like, what does this fact uh, mean to me? How does it bear on me and my history? You know, how do I think about it now? How did I think about it then? How does it change every day? 
you know, that's that deeper level of engagement that I think you're referring to. And it's interesting because I personally think like that's on the student um, to bring that to the, you know, bring that to their education. Um, yeah. The responsibility of the student to engage further than the content that you're given. Um, but these days it's, you know, what I see on campus with the younger generations um, are, you know, they're saying that it's the teacher's responsibility to keep them inspired in class. Uh, it's the teacher's responsibility to, to uh, motivate them and to, you know, and, you know, there are great strategies for teachers to do that. And most of my teachers are great at doing that, but I don't think it's their job to do that, you know? Yeah. Do you think that there, there's a, because uh, I'm thinking there's like a, a mindfulness like crisis there because it's like, um, I think what, when people say that to or about teachers is what they're trying to say is more of like, um, I want you to be mindful of this, like this student and like that they need to be motivated and all that stuff. And like, it's like, as I agree, it's not their, it's not the teacher's responsibility. Like their responsibility is to just teach the best that I possibly can. Like that's their only responsibility. But I think people are trying to say like, would you please be mindful of the student and their motivation and their enthusiasm and all those things. But instead, like, I think it's kind of like a, maybe it, it's all over the place. I don't know enough about like other cultures, but I think it's kind of like an American thing where it's just kind of like you just tell somebody it's their job and then they're like good luck you know what I mean and so they're just saying like this is your job when what they mean to say is would you be mindful of this it would be more effective if you are mindful of the student yeah I totally agree with you um yeah and you know as a future hopefully a future teacher myself you know and even now when I'm teaching jujitsu classes, um, you know, I, I try and I try and get to know the person a little bit better, the student, try and figure out like what works best for them, what instructional style works best for this person. Um, and, I, you know, I'm going around the mat trying to tailor it to, to everybody's needs. Um, but I'm finding that it's impossible to do that for everybody all the time, right? So I think teachers in our culture and especially here at CSU, I've had nothing but great teachers here, but um, they, they want to learn how to engage the student, um, you know, on those deeper levels. But I think, you know, they can only do so much. Yeah. It needs to be a motivation of the individual learning whatever skill it is to, to move beyond it, right? Like, like I'll take jujitsu again for, for instance. So white met, white belt mentality is you go in, you learn the move. Great, I have this other move in my in my belt. Um, but as you go deeper and deeper into jujitsu, you learn all these life lessons, right? You learn that the belt is is nothing. <laughs> you know, you learn that the technique only goes so far, and there's other understandings of how to approach life and what you gain and learn from the struggle of being on the mat. Um, and so, I don't know, but it takes, it takes the desire of the student to want to discover those deeper aspects. Um, do you find, I mean, it sounds like you're, 
you know, in your studies, you have that um, that push to want to, you know, dig deep not only into the content but like into your place in those classes, right? You said you're a white male in these ex ethnic studies, women's studies classes. Yeah, that's got to be a super uh, intense self-reflective practice to, to be in, in those classes as as the representation of the oppressor of most of those groups. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh. But you know what? Here's the here's something that's really it's I have a hard time. It's because it's, there's a lot a lot of the like I said, the curtain was pulled back and a lot of things I thought were true not to be bullshit. And like um, when you say like a, a white man, like that's mostly for like other people. Like I really stopped thinking about myself in that way because like it's just there's so much attached to it. Like, uh, here's something that a lot of people don't know about. Like, all right, if you think about it, it's like um, people that are white are not the color white, right? Like, it's more like a beige, a peach tone, right? And people we call black, their skin isn't black, it's brown, you know? And so it's kind of like, that's weird, right? It's weird we call each other that. The reason we call each other that is because when, like, the the country first started a black person like you know they, they said there was like irish slaves and uh native american slaves they were black a black person was somebody that you could enslave like that's that that was the definition of a black person but so like you had all these super wealthy slave masters who and then you had like slaves and then you had like the the poor people right and so like but they wanted to keep that social division because they were slave owners they were bad people right i mean these were bad people and they wanted to keep that division in society so what they would say is like we're the elites like these plantation owners the wealthy the you know the elites and they were like but we're white and so you guys are white too like so you're not we can't enslave you but um, you're not going to be one of us. So you're, we're both white, but you're not an elite and you're not a slave. You're like the peasantry, you know what I mean? So like, basically it was just a way of saying like, you're, you guys are both poor, but because you're white, you're better than those black people. And so that's like where it all came from. So it's kind of like, I don't want to say I'm white anymore, you know, because I'm like, I don't want to be part of that uh, demographic. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's it gets real confusing, especially like nowadays with like immigration and how much more aware of it we are and like, you know, how much more international just everything is. Um, well, like, uh, like, uh, what's the guy's name? Khabib Nurmagomedov, right? Like by American standards, like if you just looked at him, like that's a white guy. But like, no, he's a Russian. He's a Muslim. He barely speaks English. Like he's not really white, is he? But like we're supposed to call him white because we're in America. That's like a that's a unique thing to us. Well, it became worldwide, but yeah. So like that, it's just kind of a yeah. It's that'll wreck your whole worldview. You know, you start thinking in terms like that. No, I I like that you brought that up. Um, I've never. I've never considered 
the things that you just you just kind of blew my mind right there you know yeah and like how, how we conceptualize that as you know uh you know it's this it has this historical root but it, it makes no sense whatsoever in in today's society um i was just listening to another podcast today about aliens and an human relation to extraterrestrials and how um why would any extraterrestrial want to come down and allow us into their intergalactic um you know unified forum if we're still fighting each other over these stupid um race type issues and we're not like this unified um culture that, that they would only let in these unified cultures which got me thinking about our conversation here like we are so still, still so stuck in these um, benign racial divisions, and it's preventing, it's possibly preventing our entry into the Galactic uh, Federation. <laughs> God damn it! And yeah, <laughs> you know, and that, like they've had all those UFO UFO sightings they just released, right. so like they're here, they're waiting for us. They're just like, come on, guys, let's move it ahead. You guys have had thousands of years. Let's get this show on the road here. Yeah. Totally. No, I, I haven't thought about that uh, these days. So if you don't identify as uh, being white, and I'm, I'm starting to think I don't want to identify as white either. Um, but I also don't want to identify as an elite. Um, I don't think that that's my position uh, in society right now either. So how do you identify when people would ask you that? And, um, you know, what would you, what would you answer? Well, I think I, I would say white out of like uh, responsibility because, you know, like I've definitely benefited from white privilege, although I've definitely seen like, um, especially in Fort Collins, like there is a definite, definite like division between like, um, like it would be a good way. You didn't, you didn't go to high school here, did you? I did. I went to high school in Loveland. Oh, well, so I guess in Loveland too. Well, like here, like, uh, you know, there was like the, the rich schools and then like the mm-hmm. poorer high schools. And like, that's a good like uh, example of like the white kids and then like the people that got to be like, uh, they get to call themselves white, but are not really white, you know? Mm-hmm. And don't kind of belong in the white culture, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah. The, and it got me thinking, like something I honestly remember saying was like, uh, we were talking about like uh, ancestry. And it's like when I was in my teenage years and I would say like, I don't care, like like we'd be like, we're Irish and German and trying to figure out like, you know, all the different uh, ethnicities and backgrounds and heritage and all that stuff. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm like I'm American now, I'm white, whatever. And I'm like, no, I take that back. Like, I don't want to be a part of like uh, white America anymore. I want to like, what did my like? What were my Irish ancestors all about? What were my German ancestors all about? You know, like I should, I want to be a part of that culture now. Go back to the homeland. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, most of my background, uh, I, I would have to admit, I'm pretty much totally white in my back. You know. Uh, Irish, English, um, kind of came from the Vikings, um, that kind of background, and yeah. Scandinavia, things like that. And um, but 
I've tried to, you know, and I explore some of those things and some of the, some of the mythology of, of uh, Scandinavia is fascinating to me. I love those stories. Uh, I connect with those stories. When I hear thunder and lightning outside, I think of those, uh, those mythologies um, all the time. But um, for me, it's like, I can, I can choose to engage pieces of, of my ancestry and I can choose to reject other pieces of American um, society, I guess, that I would fit into um, just by default. You know, I, I, I can reject those pieces too, but I can also sort of have the freedom to pick and choose like an ideology or a belief system that is completely not in my own lineage or heritage, right? So I prefer Buddhism I prefer Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I engage a lot of like Eastern mysticism into my practices and shamanic practices from all over the world and uh, ideologies. Um, and so I also feel like connected to a lot of those things too, you know what I mean? That are not necessarily in my, in my uh, ethnicity, but probably still in my DNA somehow. Yeah. Um, well, it was a lot. <laughs> I'm sure I remember I had something. Oh, you were saying like earlier, I was thinking when you were talking about lightning and thunder, mm. like the stories and like, do I believe it's Thor? No, but do I know it isn't? No. I don't. I don't know it isn't. Like it could be. Very, like in sure sciences, they explain like lightning comes when this and this and this happens, right? But it's like, when did that happen? Like, how does that happen? Like, we don't know all the way down. And the way I always feel about science and like aliens and all this other stuff is like, they always say like, well, you need water to survive, right? But if they go and find this life form that survives that water, all of a sudden, like, okay, so some forms of life can live without water. And so it's like, every time I say, like, aliens couldn't travel here that fast because, like, this, that, and the other thing, and, like, the nearest planet is this so far away. And it's like, unless they come down, it's like, no, this is how we traveled that far that fast. And then it's like, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, I guess science changed again. And I was just watching the universe on Netflix, and they are talking about Jupiter, I think Jupiter, and it's like a gas giant. They said, if you tried to step on Jupiter's surface, you would just fall right into it. And I'm like, do we know that for sure though? Like, has anybody tried stepping on it? <laughs> no. Dude, I would love to see somebody try to step on Jupiter. Yeah, I, I would feel terrible if they then died and like they did it in my like, I was like, yeah, do it. And then they died, I'm like, well, but at least they died in the name of science or something, you know? Yeah. I got um, that. No, I love that about science, and that's also super frustrating about science, um, is that it's ever-changing. And um, what's frustrating is when people get locked into static science, you know, science that just stops in, in one particular place and uh, doesn't progress further in someone's thinking. It's really frustrating. Um, yeah. And it's like, uh, can you prove that it's not like you know magic i don't think you can no. also i think that our idea of like what if like our standards for magic just got too high you know like because i was just thinking 
if you were to go back in time and tell somebody like you could have a face-to-face conversation with somebody on the other side of the planet through this little like box you hold in your hand they'd be like well yeah it's magic don't be an idiot like of course that's magic well it's like in like do you, you do you like lord of the rings uh yeah i've seen it a few times remember like the plantier and they could like see you could see sauron in it like they were like that would be magic and like we do that all we're literally doing this right now looking into our plantiers but like so we say like yeah you and i are looking into our plantiers and like what well, and somebody would say like i would say like we're performing magic right now right and then somebody would say like well, it's not magic it's just like they send these codes into like this wire and then it shoots up to a satellite and sends it to another satellite and sends it back to him and like that's how it happens it's not magic i'm like well just because we can say like that's how it happens like doesn't mean it's not magic (laughs) yeah it's like if like i can explain how like the fireball came out of gandalf's staff like it's not not less magic he still shot a fireball you know it's just uh now i know how to explain it yeah man you 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 make really good points. Um, I feel like what we're doing in every moment of our existence is magic. You know, right. in my in my opinion, and how I think about consciousness and this three D reality outside of ourselves is that it's a you know it's a projection. It's something that we've created um, either you know individually and collectively both. Um, but it's it's a projection of of how we want to represent you know the universe in these in these various patterns Um, yeah yeah i don't know i don't know where i was going with that um well life is kind of magic we were oh yeah so magic right so that that in in and of itself is magic right that that we're creating just how the body works we know how it works we know how we take in light and we make form in front of us and our brain makes up 80% of our visual field, uh, makes it up uh, as a, you know, because it's not actually there all the time and quantum physics and all these things, you know, all this is magic still, even though we have an explanation for it. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to, I want to hold on to that, that feeling of mysticism in all of it, right? Like that's an important feature in a lot of these things we're talking about. And when you get rid of that, it just becomes like stale and boring. You know, I want to be able to to imagine that, that we don't know 99.9% of information out there. Yeah. And like, what's the, like, we, we, we like to think of ourselves at like the a kind of like a technological peak, you know, and like the way that we say, like we use technology too much you know so we've kind of like hit our maximum or like we're not we need to like start dialing back on technology so and like how many times in history did people think they were at the technological peak and like they had no idea what was coming you know so like what if we think now we're like we got computers things can't get any better from here and like really just can't conceptualize it yet because like we really have no idea of what's going to happen like uh could you imagine being like I and I was just thinking about this because I like watching like just highlights from like I like I really watch like watching like hockey highlights and I, see that's what I I feel like I've I feel good about myself in that like I feel like I'm grateful enough you know what I mean because it's like 
I can't, I always think about it. Like I always feel a little bit guilty sometimes like, like YouTubing like the exact thing or like event I want to see. Like, like I'd be like, like I literally be like, like fourth round Ali versus Liston. Oh wait, they all, and I'll be like, I want to watch that round again. And I'm like, like man, I can't believe in reality. Yeah. And, and so, and then, so like I was watching uh, like these hockey highlights and it hit me like, before like in the time before photography it was you either saw the thing happen or like you had no like that was it like you either you were either there or that's it like you didn't experience it you know what i mean you have no idea what it looked like you have no idea what happened and nowadays you can be like you know we can review it you know and i always think about like that like uh um like if it's unfair to judge because i always like well, not anymore, but I used to really be into like when they would rank like the greatest athletes of all time and all that stuff, or like the best, or like right now, like um, best uh, like boxers of all time, right? I don't think it's fair to compare to like people pre-video with people now because like they couldn't review video. They had to guess like what somebody was gonna do and like go off like what they could see. Like like if you went to like this guy, all this person's fights, you could say like, I remember watching that he would throw his hooks like this, you know what I mean? But then like, but nowadays you can be like, this guy throws his hook like this. It'd be a little bit better if instead you did like, you threw it like this instead of like that or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, that's, that's, nobody else had that privilege. And like nowadays, like it's a little unfair to compare like athletes to from now to then. And I think maybe in that way, like it's unfair to judge artists in that way too. Like they didn't have as much material to review as we did, you know? Why do you think people look down on the idea of magic? Where, you know, we're talking about, you know, stereotypical forms of magic, but also that, you know, everything that we're doing in our technological world is magic. The reality itself is magic. So why this negative opinion still of magic? Um, in our culture, why do you think? And yet, and yet, we flock to the movies to to be able to see it on the big screen, you know. Yeah. And and then in our everyday, we're like, we're like, fuck magic. Yeah. You can't prove okay. it. And fuck that. Yeah, like I'll make fun of you if you like yeah. start talking about magic. Like I'll think you look down upon you. I think it's because America is like where magic came to die, you know? Because like they say, like everybody was like everybody come here from like every background right but what they didn't say is like when you get here like 86 the backgrounds and get to work like you can be a farmer or like a factory worker and that's it and like i know like you don't get to bring like all your religions you get this like one religion or you can combine a bunch of two and like forget about your culture like i said like it doesn't matter that you're like slovenian you're a white dude now your name's johnson like go plow the fucking fields you know and so like the, i think um uh it's it's a it's against like a the uh american agenda to believe in magic you know what i mean like uh yeah because working hard is our agenda not um creating out of thin air <laughs> yeah yeah and it's uh and to, i think it's to be like um uh, don't get excited like you're not special. Like you're, you're a farmer like everybody else. Like, uh, you know, um, yeah. And then like, 
um, you guys all, all consume the same, like you're supposed to all eat the same stuff and want to dress the same and do all the same stuff because it's what we sell, you know, and it's American for you to do this. It's American for you to be the way we prescribe. And if you love freedom, then you'll be like, behave the way we say. And I think that like, if you were to, um, I mean, like to believe that like, you do have that power, like you have the power of Merlin because you have an iPhone, you know, like uh, all of a sudden, like, well, maybe you're more than just a farmer. Maybe you're more than just a factory worker. And I think they're like, Ooh, no, you're, a, you're just a peasant. Get back to work. Like we're the special ones because we have shitloads of money. Mm. We were here first. Mm. That doesn't sit well. Anytime, anytime we bring up like, um, I don't know, and this is, and this is a, a part of it, right? This is a part of talking about these kind of things is sometimes feeling uncomfortable, sometimes feeling like disconnected from the original ideologies that created these circumstances and yet still being considered a part of that grouping of people. You know what I mean? I'm saying this is like every day for me now, being an ethnic studies major. It's almost yeah, like every totally. day I learn something new. I'm like, God damn it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, we're learning a lot of, I'm learning a lot about equity and equality and white privilege and, um, you know, white male oppression and all this stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, like these are, these are the people that I'm directly tied to, but I don't feel connected to them. You know, no. I feel connected to, um, you know, more ancient ancestors that were, that were collectivists that were um, worked together in small communities and helped each other out, no matter what you looked like or had preferences for, um, just doesn't sit well. Um, but it's it's definitely for you and I, well, for me anyway. It's it's an amazing transformative adventure to like go into these kind of classes and have and sit sit with that and sit yeah. with sit with the readings that you're reading that are pointing fingers at you know right at you. Yeah. Well, and you know, here's the the thing that changed me too is because like I grew up with like. Uh, friends of every like ethnicity like i had uh black friends i had like uh, latinx friends it just it wasn't weird to me and so like i still have that same mentality but it's just like now i can't help but think that like like i don't see this person as a black person but other people do and they have to deal with that you know and i'm just like that damn that like that's that's terrible. Like I gotta like try to do something about that you know that's kind of like what my like the motivation behind majoring in ethnic studies was is it was like yeah I don't feel that way like I, I I never felt like a racist and it's like uh that's cool but like now I need to do something about that because racism is really like prevalent it's kind of like what the country was built on you know what I mean yeah so it's like yeah. I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta help I can't just like sit stand by anymore I gotta get throw my hat in the room yeah, absolutely. I'm starting to see it now more as like a responsibility. Like it was, it was my people technically who, you know, who did this to, who created this country the way it, the way it is today. Um, and 
they can't undo it because they are long gone, you know? Yeah. But, and I, I also acknowledge that, you know, white privilege still does exist. And I certainly um, unknowingly most of the time have probably taken advantage of that many times yeah. in my life. Uh, and I have to acknowledge that, but um, you're right from this place, what can I do to, to help move things forward? you know so and and that's a question i still struggle with and i still wrestle with because i also don't want to do anything that that's not my place to do you know yeah. um so for you you know where do you find yourself with that question how do you want to or how do you feel comfortable um stepping forward and, and trying to help change people's thinking around this in our country yeah well the thing that i think and mind you, I've only been at this for two semesters now, so I'm still like uh, building this, like on my ideas and all stuff. But I think what the um, the uh, most important thing right now is is I think that we need to be a lot more patient with people, for starters. Like I'm kind of a, opposed to. Um, like the way people go after like celebrities and stuff on Twitter because they'll be like dropping these concepts on people that like, I want to like, uh, like I want to ask those people, like, are you telling, like, tell me that you didn't just learn this concept like six months ago. And now you're like laying on this person, like not only should they know this concept, but they have like a responsibility to it and they're a bad person for not fulfilling it. When it's like, you know, I've realized that because like I, I've had that same kind of like passion because like, you know, when you read something like about like the the injustices and like the atrocities and all stuff, like you get like this resentfulness and you want to be like, you want to hit back at like racists and white privilege and white power structures and all that stuff. But then like it hits me again. I'm like, I just learned this at 30. Like, yeah. So for 30 years, like I didn't feel this way. So I'd expect somebody else to like, not only like understand the same concept, but to like understand why I'm like coming at them and like attacking them is really unfair. And I think that's kind of like what drove like the, the, like the alt-right kind of like white power, like like uh, union there. Like, the, cause you know how they like the neo-Nazis and the alt-right, I don't know if they're still like in cahoots, but like for a while there, they were like working together. And I think that's what drove it is like they, people like they wanted to be part of it, like a tolerant culture but like once they like dipped their toe into this tolerant culture or, or culture of tolerance they got like they saw like this like immediate backlash people were getting like this like angry like vitriol it's like you're not you're participating in this white power structure and you're by you making this commercial and you know stuff and so they're like i can't be a part of that culture because i don't want to be attacked so i'm going to go find where i am comfortable and it just so happens that I share a lot of values with these people. And then you come to find out they're neo-Nazis and you're like, well, I'm not a neo-Nazi, but like I wanted to be. And so I think that we like needs to be more like patience and tolerance. Uh, and like we, there definitely needs to be uh, room for people to accept responsibility and change. You know, like um, I, I thought of this example, we were talking about the, that I can't remember her name now, but the little girl that was in the in the fifties at Little Rock, and they had to be uh, escorted in by the National Guard uh, to school. 
uh, and we, they were talking about like, you know, it was all those really famous pictures of like the white ladies like following him and like screaming mean shit at him. And then it was, I was in the small group and we were talking about one of the ladies in the pictures. It was like, saw that like, herself in the picture, like did a total 180 and like is now like a advocate for racial equality and all that stuff. And they were like, the people in the group, I was just like, well, now she is, and now she's trying to get it. And I'm like, if we're not going to allow people to like realize their mistakes and change, like, then we're just here sitting here drawing battle lines. We're just saying that like, okay, so we're on this side, you're on that side. Let's get like, let's go. Like we're at war. And when in fact it's supposed to like, I think that a lot of people lose the true like um, meaning of arguing and debating like you're not trying to prove the other person wrong. You're trying to win them to your side. You know, and I think a lot of times it comes with people trying to prove another person wrong. Like they're trying to win the debate rather than trying to like win over the person, you know? And I think that's the real goal is you're trying to like make them see what you see, you know? And so I think that we need to like start taking that into um, consideration. Uh, and then, I had one more. What's that? That was beautiful. That was amazing oh. how you said that. Um, oh, thank you. It reminded me of a, of a situation I had to um, at school, uh, you know, with, you know, with, um, you know, what I would consider like a, uh, so, I don't know, someone probably more progressive than me, more knowledgeable in, in this sphere than myself. Um, but this COVID thing hit, right? And um, I found myself torn between these two camps that we were talking about, right? Like quarantine everybody, uh, herd mentality, but also people who are like, fuck that, like I still need to work, like let me go to work, let me uh, provide for my family, I'm gonna get evicted. Um, and I found myself torn between those two because one of my classmates um, said something like, uh, um, if you, you know, I'm, she said, uh, I'm going to be a good citizen by staying at home and um, doing what I'm told, pretty much, you know, like, like following the guidelines. And in my head, that just screamed like, oh my God, like, on one hand, yes, you're, you're following the guidelines like a good citizen should but on the other hand like this is america like good citizen is supposed to stand up for um freedom and constitutional rights and like so my head went, went to like well i want to be a citizen and still express my freedoms or else they're going to be taken away from me um you know almost like a like a fear mentality um and so torn between these two you know and they're competing they're still competing and they're competing at the national level too, uh, among society at large, you know, like, do we stay quarantined or do we go back to work? When is, when is the time to go? And there's like this, um, yeah, we're just not, we're not, uh, we're not addressing the deeper question, like you said. No. Yeah, yeah. And uh, boundary lines, war lines. What's that? We're drawing war lines, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, um, it's, it's not so much like I feel like a lot of people will take um, those classes because there's not a lot of ethnic studies majors. In fact, like I remember like there was a meeting 
of ethnic studies majors and like they had it catered and I was like that's funny because you kind of probably could have just like taken like all five of our orders because there's like five of us here you know mm-hmm. um and so uh um a lot of the people will be like English majors or something else and they'll be taking this class as like an elective or something and I feel like a lot of those people are just to be like I can prove I'm not racist because I took this class and this gives me like the agency to tell you you are racist and like we're op- we're uh, opposing one another now like you're on the uh the the wrong side of it and I'm on the right side like yeah yeah you have a badge of initiation yes yeah mm-hmm. like uh, you have like Whatever, like you have the reverse swastika now, like as your logo, like whatever the verse that is, like I'm definitely not a Nazi, but you're a dick. <laughs> yeah, dude, I I found that um, that same feeling too. Um, this year, I was exposed to. I'd taken some women's studies classes in my undergrad and probably explored feminism back there back then, but not very mindfully. Um, I think I still got an A in the course, but I don't remember it that well, honestly. Um, but uh, where was I going with that? Um, Women's studies. Yeah, no, I lost it. Took it as an undergrad. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So I was re uh, reexamining feminism um, this last semester. Just read a couple articles on it as part of a class, and I found myself um, again torn because I agree, you know, I agreed with parts of feminism, but I didn't agree with it uh, to the extent that I thought would be necessary to call myself a feminist. And I see these other people out here, like males too, especially uh, calling themselves male feminists and stuff. And I don't think they know the concept of what feminism is about. Um, And I'm not saying feminism's bad by any means. There's definitely some great progressive parts, but just like any other theory, it's flawed in many ways. Um, yeah. Just like the theories that I ascribe to too. And so that was one example of sort of like you brought up neo-Nazism before and and um, things like that. So yeah. that was one that that I kind of had to um, sit back and and examine my relationship with this last semester. Yeah, and, and fe- feminism is more like uh, complex than people realize too because it, it came in waves. There's four waves of like, well, they're theorized that we're in the fourth wave of feminism now. And so it was always like, what feminism was, it, like, how it was defined was what was necessary at the time, you know? So the first wave was the um, suffragettes, you know? So that was, I mean, while there was lots of women's rights issues at the time, the the key point in feminism there was like, we just want the vote, like just let us vote as like human beings, you know? And then um, like the second wave came around in the uh, the fifties and it was in response to like the post-war modernist culture, you know? Then then seventies was like the uh, Roe v. Wade and the, birthrights and the equal pay and all that stuff. And then we're doing it like, then there was a third wave that was the equal pay. So it was kind of like, it was whatever, like it, it was a response to the time, you know? So it's hard to say like feminism is one thing because it was, depends on which area you're talking about and who you're talking about. But really like the broad concept though, is just, is like, um, uh, 
we, it's, it's a, we have a male dominated culture and this is like a way of like uniting and empowering women. And so I think it's right to, I'm, I'm in the camp where it's like, I, I support feminism. I agree with feminism, but I don't think I can call myself a feminist because it's like feminism was created like, like, uh, for people that like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't say not that my people oppress, you know what I mean? So it's like, uh, I, I can't be part of the club that like people that look like me create, like made a need for, you know? Yeah, and it's not for me to define like it's uh, that's for women to get together and be like, what do we need? Like, what's what's the 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 issues we can all agree on here? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think uh, I think the major limitation that I saw on feminism is that, um, and and then I was later told that this is sort of just implied in feminism, but um, that it's not explicitly stated beyond, um, you know, the, the uh, male-female construct, right? And in, in yeah. this emerging culture now with all sorts of people who identify in all sorts of ways, like, and even, if, you know, if we have aliens come down, right, we, they're going to be androgynous most likely, and we're going to have to, yeah, yeah so, so how do we apply feminism, which, you know, is limited even in its name, right, with feminine yeah. in there, right? Uh, if we want it to be even more inclusive, which what I think is at the core of feminism is all inclusiveness, then, um, you know, we, it's limited in that way, in, in that uh, I think it gets, yeah, it gets bogged down in, in um, male, female. Yeah, yeah, and see that, and like, this is more, I think, and like, this is, again, why, like, I'm studying, like, I still, like, I, I don't feel comfortable in like putting out like what I say, what I think the solution is or anything, because I feel like there's a lot more to learn. And then, but, and this is more of what I, why I think that like there needs to be more of like a, a kind of a gentle approach from people like me to people that like uh, are still learning about all these topics is because like, if I were to say that like the key of feminism is to like push back against the patriarchy well like what happens there is like most people hear patriarchy and will be like oh you mean men and it's like no like so like you gotta the patriarchy pause and be like let me explain patriarchy to you and see that's why i think it's like it's it's dangerous like these twitter beefs so you see people I'm like you gotta understand like this is, this is complicated and like if you sat there and explained to somebody all of these topics, like they would, they would, they would be against, I think most everybody would be against patriarchy because mm -hmm. like when they're like saying they're like, they hate the government. I'm like, what you actually are trying to say is you hate patriarchy. Like, and that when I say that people are going to like a person who's not familiar with any of these topics is probably going to be like, like, uh, you think like politicians are like my dad or like, we're all this, like, this is all men. It's like, no, trust me. It's like, like it's it's not what you think it is. It's like all the reasons you as a white man are like angry at the world is because like patriarchy. You know what I mean? Like you agree with feminists. Trust me, you don't realize it yet, but like mm -hmm. you do. Yeah, that's the thing that I kept realizing until that like kept hitting me is like I mean I'm a total nerd. Like I, I have a Star Wars tattoo. You know, like I love all these things. And like the thing that I kept being like that was like this is like why part of why I love it is I was like. 
these people are like the rebel alliance you know what i mean like they are they're fighting like the evil empire and like the rebel alliance like these people are fucking cool like i like these people i like i wish i could get to know some of these people like this is like han solo and chewbacca right here yeah that's a great metaphor i want to take it one step further and say that you know the evil empire is the patriarchy the global patriarchy influence and these rebels um we're all rebels right feminists are rebels um buddhists are rebels you know any anybody that fights against the patriarchy is a rebel but in the in those movies like in order to defeat that empire they needed to come together in the rebel alliance right the re the alliance between them was was essential in bringing them down and that's the piece that we we need to move forward in our evolution hopefully in our lifetime to this place where we can become this alliance against the patriarchy bring it down and then start start anew start something yeah. that works uh, that actually works hopefully yeah and you know this is like a something that i really hit it i could relate to i guess you could say is like i grew up poor like i lived in trailer parks apartments like i was a, i was a poor kid right and i went to like like the second richest high school in town which is still like it was pretty like they were they were rich kids. Um, like I won't say, I don't want to say it on here, but like there's a car dealership, a famous car dealership here in town. And like the name of the car dealership, I knew like the kid with that name, like they were rich kids. Right. And it's like, I, I felt like an outsider there and not like an outsider. Like, I mean, like I was just like, did not belong in that high school, you know? And so like, you know, and like, I, so I wasn't friends with any of them. Like I didn't enjoy going to class and like felt like, you know, an outcast. And like in reading this out, like in all these studies, I'm like, I'm not that I'm trying to like discount or like uh, disregard like the concepts of white privilege and like uh, racism and all those things. But it's like, I, if I could show like all these people, like how similar the way you feel that you've been treated by like the world and the society and the government and the way like, like minorities and uh you know others uh cultural others feel like you'd be like wait a minute i think we're all on the same side like we're against like the elite and the patriarchy like we're like uh, we, if we all got together you know it's kind of like i feel like if you were to take like an individual person and you were to say like does like universal health care make sense to you they'd be like yes but when you say like okay now we're gonna do it for the whole country it's like oh wait no hold on that's a bad idea you know yeah. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, too, because I know we've gone over a little bit. Uh, and I didn't even get to ask you um, the only real scripted question that I have for this show, which is usually the first question, but I, I think it's going to be the last question for us today, um, which is that, you know, the show is called Conversations with the Mind. And I want to know for you, how does that phrase land and what does that mean to you? From your own perspective, conversations with the mind. Conversations with the mind. I would say it's um, to me, it's kind of like a a study of the things I can't define, but I know that I feel. You know, so it's trying to grapple with that. Like, how do I explain that? Like, there's yeah, like it's um. There's things that I don't understand that maybe your your mind can help my mind understand, you know? 
Yeah, that's been blessed for not only the, the conversation we have with ourselves between the known and the unknown and walking that tightrope, but also the conversations that we have with each other and shared minds. And, um, you know, I like to say that, you know, this podcast sort of represents um, like a puzzle. You know, it's an eight billion piece puzzle. And each guest that I have onto the show brings another piece to that larger picture. And when we put together all of these pieces in one place, then we can start to see a larger picture start, uh, emerge, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think that was well reflected in, in what you had to say. So, Colby, I wanna say thanks again for coming on. That it was short notice, but I'm glad that you, um, glad that you wanted to do this, man. This was really fun. It's fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I'll have to do round two soon. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, let's definitely do this. Did you say your dad what, uh, was a politician? No. Okay. What? I said that. I was, I was going to say, like, we have to unpack that. But um, no. No, but we started going down a, a, a bit of a, another rabbit hole that I love to talk about with you, which is politics and, um, you know, how it fits in sort of like this bipartisan cultural framework that we have and how we can move beyond that. And, um, yeah, we got some good talks coming. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be fun. I'm excited. Well, right. thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, see ya. Wow, awesome show. Thank you so much, Colby. Um, it was an honor to have you on, and a pleasure as always to talk to a good friend of mine. Um, thank you for uh, sharing your story uh, and expanding my viewpoint and expanding, um, you know, making me less ignorant. So I'm always very appreciative of that. Folks, if you want to find Colby on Facebook, you can find him, uh, Colby Kelly, just his name, uh, and Instagram as well, Colby M. Kelly, um, just how it's spelled, C-O-L-B-Y-M-K-E-L-L-Y. So, um, guys, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. It means the world to me. That's why I make these things. Um but I also learned from it too. So it's kind of a selfish endeavor, but uh, at the same time, you know, you guys are my main inspiration to get that out. I just sort of benefit secondarily from having these conversations. Um, and I hope you all benefit from them too. So until next time, keep listening and uh, take care of each other, folks. It's a cruel world out there sometimes. And uh, sometimes the goodness that you want to see starts with you. So go out there and be nice to yourself and to others. Peace. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face -face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. 
Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.